This is Car Expert. The Patrol isn't the Grand Cherokee's direct rival in its home country. The Grand Cherokee L is a pretty bloody big beast. The Nero is a generation behind. Now that's not a problem for an affordable everyday vehicle. And the hybrid, even though it is a bit expensive, is still affordable for a lot of people. And it wouldn't be a Mini if it didn't have the Union Jack motifs all freaking everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) William Stockford, hello. Hello, Mandy. And Tony Crawford, hello to you too. Mandy, how are you? How did you like those enamel, um, the enamel coloured uh, beetle that I sent you that you saw on my Insta? <laughs> yes. Interesting. Got a massive number of um, hits. You better explain to our listeners what you're talking about. Well, I, I, was, at the, talking about. <laughs> I was at the Bursan um, Motor Show recently with uh, Hyundai and when I walked into the, uh, to the hall, there was three cars, uh, an original beetle, uh, a Ferrari 488 and a Porsche 997 911. And they were all covered in this enamel slash ceramic looking finish. It looked very uh, psychedelic, quite, didn't it? It was absolutely amazing. And that enamel, if you've got close up, if you want to freeze uh, on my Insta, if anyone knows that, um, they will see the uh, detailed New York skyline. Um, and someone had painstakingly done this enamel work on these cars, and it was just in, in, incredible. And when I posted it last night, I, I, I got inundated with just, you know, just notification after notification, like every second, bang, bang, bang. It was just ongoing for about an hour and a half. <laughs> I just don't know. I just posted it up as something interesting that probably no one's ever seen before, but clearly it resonated with the audience. Good. I just have to laugh, Tony, that you're the oldest member of our team, not saying that you're old, just that you're the oldest member of our team, but you flex about your social media presence more yes. than anybody on this team. I'm I very proud of our Instagram account. I'm very pr- Well, look, it, it, it offers instant gratification when you post something. I think that's what social's all about. And, mm. uh, and I do love posting about all the, the, the small, the big, the wonderful, anything to do with automotive and, you know, from ceramic beetles to the latest Porsche Macar. I mean, it's all good stuff to me. <laughs> well, anyway. speaking of good stuff, you yeah. had the chance to drive the very first ever E28 M5. What was that oh, experience like? Oh, Mandy, Will, you've got a <laughs> like this thing came out in this is a, the last of the, of the run, basically, 1989. They came out in 1985. So this is, this is what started the, the you know, that, that age-old thing, Wolf in um, sheep's clothing, and that's what the original M5 was all about. Um, talk about, you know, that phrase because this, you could barely tell the difference between an E28 5 Series and an M5 edition. The only way you could tell are the two very uh, unpretentious badges on the front and, and for rear and a very, very lightweight spoiler kit. Uh, which included a slightly deeper front valance and a and a, a boot lid spoiler made of some sort of rubberized, vulcanized rubber, and that was it. But under the bonnet was the same engine from the M1 supercar of 1978. <laughs> Only this one had more power. They tinkered with it, and uh, individual throttle bodies and a whole bunch of other. Um, it had basically developed nine PS. So the German version of horsepower, 9 PS more than the M1 engine. Can you believe in a four-door sedan? 
<laughs> and that's why this thing is so special. So this thing was 33 years old, um, maintained by what's called BMW Classic, who run a fleet of all the old vehicles they look after. And, you know, you don't need to pussyfoot around in these cars. I was following a guy in, a, in his own worked uh, E36 wagon, and he was thrashing this wagon. And I'm thinking, i got to keep up. i I got to get get into this, so I was literally throwing this thing around. They expect you to do that, and he wasn't looking in his rear vision mirror to make sure I was there. He's just gone, and if you don't you don't you don't drop the pedal, you're you're lost in the forest in somewhere in Germany, um, because there ain't no GPS in this car. Let me tell you, not not from 1989. And um, look, I was so impressed. I also drove an uh, E46 M3 and I drove an E39, but the E28 M5, which is what I'm uh, writing a story on at the moment, was by far the most exciting to me. The fact that it had these incredibly well-bolstered seats, so a massive bolstered seats, but they're also incredibly comfortable. The, um, the damping was perfect. I mean, you didn't feel the bumps. And when I started to throw it around, I mean, of course, there was some body roll um, because suspension wasn't set up in those days like it is today on high performance, like an M5 of today, for instance, which is, you know, with adaptive suspension can be rock hard or relatively firm put it that way and and in and everything in between this thing was absolutely soft but the moment it leaned in then it sort of stopped so you knew exactly how much lean you could throw in and eventually i was just literally throwing it in and driving it flat out of course it's manual um and a fantastic uh gearbox you couldn't hurry the gearbox because uh, it doesn't want to be hurried but nice firm um distinct shifts and right up to the rev range, six and a half thousand RPM, I was changing at about five thousand uh, to keep up with this guy in this E thirty six M three wagon, and um, I, I just loved it, Mandy. It was just fantastic, and I love the fact that this created this sort of business executive high performance sedan. This was the start of it. This is where it all came from, the M five, and it, you know it's such a revered uh, thing, and to to do to be able to drive that flat out, flat chat. In German on German B roads, I just think you know it's just one of the things that are offered to us in this game that you know they don't come along very often, but when they do, gee, you you love it. And of course, I'm writing a story on driving going flat chatting an E28 M5, which I'm really enjoying writing. What did it sound like going at flat chat? Really good. It's a it's a key, of course, on the right hand side of the steering column. So it's an old school little key. Turn it over, and that three and a half liter. Um, uh, inline six, straight six from the M1. I mean, that, you're talking about a supercar engine. In a, that's what it's all about. That's what we still love today, right? Yeah. Um, big engines in in relative, well, in, even in smaller cars than that, of course, with M3. But um, when you when you, it just burbled, Mandy. It sounded like a high tempo burble, and uh, it sounded really, really good near the sort of mid to top range of its rev of its rev uh, count. Um, so, yeah, just just brilliant. And just the, the steering wheel with no buttons on it, just a three-spoke, uh, looked like a Momo steering wheel, to be honest, and uh, with nothing on it except the M colours, and then you had an M colour strip on the back, uh, back seat back, and that was it. And that's, yeah, you know, pure. you really couldn't tell, but when you lifted up that bonnet and saw the, the, the six, saw all the individual throttle bodies and the M power, um, you know, stamped into the uh, to the block. It was, you know, just you just love that, don't you? And the fact that you can drive these cars and they drive well after 33 years, I just think it's extraordinary. 
um, and, and, you know, it takes this whole group, this whole separate division, BMW Classic, to be able to keep all – and, you know, you can drive anything from a CSL, the original 3-litre CSL to an E46 CSL. They've got every car you can think of and it's in mint condition. If you And if you uh, are in this game, you can generally um, call ahead and be able to – and, you know, get permission to be able to drive these cars and – uh, it's really a fantastic thing that BMW do, and I'm sure all the other marks do it too. You know, Mercedes yeah. and all those other German brands that have such a historic racing significance because M, of course, stood for motorsport. So these cars were developed by the motorsport division that also raced cars. So this is why the M is so important. And, of course, this year we celebrated 50 years of M. So let's hope we get another 50 years of these guys doing their thing. Very, very fitting. Well, we can't wait to to read your story, Croft, because I'm sure yeah. it'll match the smile on your face right now. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about this week's car news. G'day, Jack Quick. Hello, Mandy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, the Toyota Land Cruiser 70 Series, I saw one of these at a dealership the other day, and I'm like, wow, now that's a very rare diamond right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> orders for these have been paused. Uh, why is that? Well, um, the, as you would know, the iconic Land Cruiser 70 series has been, uh, orders have been paused due to ongoing production issues and historically high demand. They just can't produce enough of, enough of them and everyone wants one, in other words. Um, as Mandy said, it's a rare diamond. Good luck finding one. Um, so there's uh, Toyota's put the pause on production um, for, for pause on orders, should say, on the Land Cruiser uh, 70 series because there's a multi-year wait if you want to order one right now. We um, recently wrote a story where um, a Toyota dealer was quoting um, a, a wait time for a Land Cruiser 70 series between, I think it was 12 months or no, it was four years or never. It was something ridiculous. <laughs> this lady, I know, it was, it was insane. But that's the reality. Like the, if you want one of these cars, you're going to have to be waiting a very, very long time. But um, one thing that this, seeing that Toyota's pausing the orders, it kind of brings something into play because Toyota recently detailed some updates for the Land Cruiser 70 series, which brought with it um, a GVM upgrade that also it was kind of a masked way of um, pushing, it, <laughs> pushing it into a new category, the medium goods vehicles, uh, making it a medium good ve- goods vehicle, um, which means it doesn't have to comply to certain, it has a different sort of ADRs that it has to comply with so it can get away in some areas rather than like a, a light goods vehicle and um uh and i wanted to know guys do you reckon the the land cruiser 70 series if you can get one do you reckon the, the um the demand will ever die down for these cars i definitely don't think so because i uh, for a period of time i used to live in the the ute capital of the world i suppose you could say daniloquin and uh, I was mates with a Toyota dealership there and he said, farmers come into my dealership, don't even drive any of the, the, the 70 series. They say, I just want to trade in my old one and I want the new one straight away. They, they well, don't care. They know it's reliable and it's a good it, thing. Interestingly, my brother-in-law just got out of his old one into, sent me a photo of his brand new one with a ribbon on it. Uh, down near the Southern Highlands, so probably Barrels, where he went and bought his mm-hmm. trade up into the brand new grey one. So seventy series Ute, um, nice. they seem to be incredibly popular. They're really the holy grail of any tradie 
that has done reasonably well because they just will go and go and go. Mm. And many of them have got well over 300,000 Ks on them and are still selling for good money with 300,000 Ks on them. Um, that's the sort of, that's the pedestal that most tradies and anyone that really needs to do proper work um, does with these utes. So they really are the number one go-to vehicle for a proper tradie ute, you know. I can see the appeal for somebody who wants something rugged and simple, who perhaps lives miles away from from civilization, yeah. um, with own the dealership anywhere near them as a Toyota dealership. You know, it's it's a it's a proven design. This the seventy series dates back to the eighties. Um, it's obviously been updated since then, but it still looks pretty much the same. <laughs> so there's a, there's a very very specific audience for them, and particularly those kind of regional buyers. I totally understand why they keep buying it. Um, even though, despite having a V8, its its power and torque is really nothing to write home mm. about compared to modern turbo diesel four-cylinder engines, despite the fact that, well, they did say that they're adding AEB with pedestrian and cyclist detection at the same time as having it recategorized as a medium goods vehicle. So, <laughs> 151 um, kilowatts for 30 newton meters. It's not bad. It's perfectly actually powered to weight in terms of that V8. We're in a market right now where you've got semiconductor chip shortages, you've got COVID-19 related plant closures and things like that. And there are senior level executives at, at car companies that are struggling to get cars Literally. For, for themselves. So uh, I think wow. even no matter how well connected you are, given Toyota has been quite transparent with all its production pauses and that and we've, we've heard quite a bit of, uh, uh, of how the Land Cruiser 70 series is affected, I think maybe Christmas won't come early yeah, for them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, our next story is sort of along the long along the lines of more cars that have been grounded. Uh, the 2023 Ford Ranger, but this is not due because of long wait times, Jack. Yes, that's right. So we've been talking about the new Ranger a lot. It's one of the most exciting things to be happening at work at the moment. I just, I don't feel like I'm never not talking about it. <laughs> um, but apparently there's there's an already an issue with the Ranger, which is a bit insane. Um, apparently that the, the Rangers with the new V6 engine, the diesel V6 engine, are experiencing tail shaft vibrations uh, in between 40 to 80 kilometers an hour and apparently owners have been experiencing this and reporting and saying in owners groups and this that and the other and we reached out to Ford and said what's going on and Ford is aware of this issue and it says um, it only affects a minor number of the V6 ranges but if you do own one and are experiencing it it's a, they say to or Ford says to reach out and I'll, I'll take a look at it and hopefully fix it. Um, I'm not exactly certain uh, 100% what the issue is, but there is an issue regardless. It shouldn't be happening out on open roads for you to be experiencing. And then for all of the the V6 ranges that haven't been delivered yet, they're going to be doing test drives of those to to make sure that they don't have this tail shaft shaft vibration, which in turn means that the delivery times are going to be blown out further than what they already are because they're going to have to drive them. Yeah. So it's, I spoke to, I spoke to Ford about this. They they have said it's only a certain number of vehicles as, as Jack said. Um, And it, my, my understanding of of it is that it appears to be a, 
isolated to a certain number of vehicles. So this might not necessarily affect somebody who orders a Ranger from today. So it might not mean that Ranger uh, waiting times overall blow out, but there are going to be some people who um, have been assigned a vehicle or have actually taken delivery of the vehicle and have to take it back to a Ford mm. dealership to have this issue rectified. So there were a few people talking about it on social media. Um, look, I wouldn't say that Ford is the only manufacturer to ever experience issues in the first year of a model. Um, there's, you know, there's an old adage that you never buy a first year vehicle, uh, particularly with, with some brands, uh, but Ford seems to be responding to this issue. Um, and they, you know, they claim to have it under control, which is good because, I mean, this is one launch you don't want to get wrong. This is possibly what one of the two most important new vehicle launches in 2022. So fingers crossed for Ford that this is the only issue that they experience with these uh, with these first Rangers. But Will, do they? They must know what's causing that issue then, if they've got it under control. So. What is True. causing the vibration? They haven't officially said what, what they think it is, whether it's a particular part or something like that. So, I mean, people on these Ranger Owners forums have been uh, positing their, their theories. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, it seems mm. to be isolated just to the V6 models, which is also unfortunate because that's that's the model that already has the longest waiting lists and, so, and sort of. so much hype around it. And, and Jack, you're right, we've been talking nonstop about Ranger and we've been going through a, a, all the different variants here in the office i'm finally going to take one home tonight so i'm pretty happy about that Woo. and if it sticks no less <laughs> we'll see if vibrations. Well, we're um, going to stick to some more ford news now the new mustang has been confirmed jack Yes, no, that's very right. And I think Will is very excited about this in particular. Um, so there's a new new Mustang coming, which is really exciting. Um, it's going to be de- uh, debuting at the 2022 D- Detroit Motor Show. And there's a few things that we know about it already. <laughs> Will's do, doing a little happy dance. He can explain <laughs> a bit. <laughs> but we do know that the new Mustang is going to be offered with a V8 because um, the Ford uh, CEO recently um, uh, confirmed that the new Mustang was launching on Twitter. Twitter, and I had a little short video with this V8 engine revving. So we know that's going to be happening again, which is very nice. cool. And we also know that it's going to be offered with a six-speed manual, um, which is obviously something that you would want in your V8 um, muscle car. <laughs> and um, gearbox? Uh, pardon, sorry, Croft? Which gearbox, Jack? Not 100% certain yet, but we do know it's going to be a six-speed manual because my detective eyes, I saw... <laughs> So in this uh, confirmation photo, it's in the O in generation. There's a six-speed H pattern that you can make out. Um, that's all that I know so far, but we know it's coming. Listen here, folks. <laughs> yeah, look, Ford would be foolish uh, to to get rid of uh, a V8 and to get rid of the six-speed manual because even though the Mustang doesn't sell, I mean, in Australia, it's still far and away the best-selling sports car. But when you look at it overall, Mustang sales volumes aren't what they were, you know, decades ago. Um, this is very much a niche part of the market, but it's it's very important image car, um, a halo car for the Ford brand. So keeping the V8 and keeping a six-speed manual is is absolutely crucial. Um, so Ford still has those enthusiast credentials. Um, also, fun bit of trivia for you. Ford has never not offered 
a V8 in a Mustang, except for 1974, the first year of the Mustang II, where they discontinued the V8 for the US market, but it actually continued to be offered in Mexico. And then in 1975, it came back in the US market. I love that you know that, Will. Yeah, a little bit of fun 70s American car (laughs) trivia for you. Why would they do that? Because Americans are so obsessed by V8s. Oh, so Ford at the time, you had the fuel crisis and the Mustang II was downsized to compete more against like the Toyota Celica and and that. So it was a lot smaller. It was related to the Ford Pinto. So it was very, so you had a four-cylinder or or V6 engine, but then the V8 came back. Yeah, so the the big thing about gearboxes is you don't want the the Getrag, which got in the bullet and the... 18 to 20, still going potentially, uh, V8 Mustangs or GTs um, because the Tremec that went in the Mac 1 is the absolute dog's bollocks when it comes to uh, robust manual transmissions that have close ratio as well. So it's a mm-hmm. much better. If I could replace the, the gearbox in my bullet, I would do it tomorrow. And lastly, Jack, for our last story, Mini has revealed the concept Ace Man. This is a little bit wild, I gotta say. Yeah, Mini showing us wild side, I'd say. Um, <laughs> um, so yes, this new Mini Concept Ace Man is a new concept car, obviously, that's going to preview a car that is going to sit between the Mini Hatch and the Mini Countryman. So it's a, a crossover, an electric crossover, think of it, that slots in between those two cars. It's also going to preview a new um, design language that we haven't seen yet from Mini that um, gets rid of all of the leather and replaces it with fabrics and uh, textiles and all that kind of fun stuff and also ditches the chrome. The iconic chrome that we've seen on all Minis thus far is going to be no more and it's calling this um, design language um i think it's called charismatic simplicity from memory um so i just wanted to mention that just for the sake of it but um it's what's going to trickle down to all of the production um mini vehicles from very soon um so this new uh, mini concept ace man has a lot of cool very concept car like uh, features it includes um, a lot of illuminated sections inside and out and it wouldn't be a mini if it didn't have the union jack motifs all freaking everywhere (laughs) (laughs) including the roof i should see that's exactly right it has this really cool roof rack that has like a union jack motif and also um it has the the tail lights that have the iconic uh, union jack that the the mini um boss has said that every um single model in the future lineup is going to have some uh, variation of that iconic Union Jack t- uh, taillight design, which makes a lot of sense because it's very popular and it's how I personally see a Mini, can identify a Mini just from those taillights alone, personally. Um, and then on the inside, there's going to be this, well, there's not going to be, there is in the concept Aceman, there's a, a new uh, circular OLED uh, infotainment screen that is eventually going to trickle down eventually into all of the new um, Mini uh, lineup as well. We recently saw it um, in a Mini electric hatch, a new new generation one over in China, the exact same uh, setup and everything. So we know it's happening, which is quite cool. And um, it's also, I'll just mention as well, this is going to be, this infotainment system is going to be Android based, um, which uh, follows a similar move um, that BMW announced recently. So it's all kind of feeding into one another and it all makes sense once you think about it. And um, so this Mini 
mini concept Aceman is going to be shown off in the flesh at uh, the 2022 Gamescom gaming event. And I'm uh, I love to see it in person. There's so many different colors and textures and just kind of it fries my brain a little bit because I don't know if, it, if you look at a photo of it and it's cropped, you don't know where you are. You don't know if it's on the inside or the outside. And it's, it's, it's wild is how I would describe it. It's, it's, it's like if you look at the photos of it, you can if you just strip away some of those fanciful details, you can see what the production vehicle is, is broadly going to look like. Like it's it not looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Look, it, look, it, looks, <laughs> it looks good. I love the chunkier lines um, than, than current mini models. But oh, look, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm mini's not my my, my brand personally. Sorry. Yeah, no. I was going to say mini. Mini has kind of just been an interesting brand for me as well. I have, I loved covering this and kind of reading all of the, the collateral. It was quite fun. <laughs> it was quite fun. Um, and I just kind of grew to love it over the time. But I think some of the colors, uh, I don't know if they match well, especially with that turquoisey blue, green, and the, the orangey, pinky colors. Blue and, and green should never be seen except in the washing machine. Isn't that the expression? <laughs> I mean, I, I've worn green shirts with jeans all the time, so I don't really follow that advice. But in this case, maybe it's valid. But um, regardless, as, as Will kind of touched on, once you kind of strip away all of those elements, uh, concept car elements, I should say, I think it's going to preview – it previews a really cool car that I think is going to be quite popular, seeing it's going to be all electric. Um, it's, it looks quite fun. I, I'm looking forward to what Mini has to offer with its future lineup because it has a whole heap going on. There's so many different models coming up. Um, I've got a whole list on my story that I can't think of right now includes like a people mover, um, but it's very, very exciting. I think many box themselves into a corner when they were reborn under BMW because they've just been recycling the same design language over and over. And this actually looks quite chunky and, and angular, but they've still felt the need to put the same mini design details that we've been seeing for years on there. So it's just kind of, if you take away all the, the neon lights and the crazy roof and all of that, it just kind of looks a lot like current mini products. So while it does look nice, it, it already looks kind of familiar to me. And I think mini needs to do something different. I think we all remember what happened with the Volkswagen new Beetle when the new Beetle became the Beetle. Um, they've kind of made it a little bit chunkier, a little bit more kind of masculine, for lack of a word, better word. And I don't know. It just seems. Isn't, isn't that what we're, they're exactly doing with this in terms of wanting to be different? Isn't what this you, precisely the I thing that the people are shape, looking though. forward to? Be you've just said that it was kind of boring and the same same. Now that it doesn't look that much. Great. It doesn't look wildly different from anything. Are that you serious? Hmm. And let's not forget that BMW are doing some amazing things in the electric uh, space at the moment with i4 and iX. And if some of that technology can trickle down into Mini, which it should by default, then uh, I, I can see a lot of people getting into this. Well, Mini also has its partnership with, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Great Wall Motors um, to develop uh, electric vehicles as well. So that's, that's a very interesting tie-up in the industry for sure. We're definitely keen to hear your thoughts if you do like that uh, new Mini concept podcast at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks for having me. The second generation of the Kia Nero is here, thankfully, as we were more than ready to move on from the outdated first gen. Mike Costello has driven the hybrid variant and he joins us to tell us more. Hello, Moco. 
Hello, Mandy. So just how much has the second generation changed? Oh, it's changed a lot. I mean, the Nero previously was available a bit like Hyundai's Ionic uh, as a hybrid and electric and a plug-in hybrid, sort of a catch-all. This is a vehicle that delivers all of your low emissions or zero emissions needs. Kia in this generation has axed the plug-in hybrid because Australians uh, don't really buy that many of them. Sales of FEVs are a mile behind EVs. So now it's just a hybrid and EV range. Now, while the EV Nero is the one that's getting all the attention, Australians actually buy a lot more hybrids than EVs. It's much more affordable technology as demonstrated by Toyota is very, very popular and successful here. So the Kia Nero hybrid is the one that people are actually going to buy. Now, it is a similar vehicle to the predecessor model in that it's a small crossover SUV. Um, But this time it actually looks quite funky. It was a bit of a dull looking thing previously. Its interior is completely different. It's a much more modern tech laden space inside. Um, And overall, just a far more modernized vehicle. This competes against things like the Toyota CHR hybrid, the Subaru XV hybrid. Um, But then, you know, I suppose it also competes with things like Seltos and Mazda CX-30, similarly sized vehicles that may not necessarily have high technology. Hmm. How much are we looking at for this one? Yeah, so I had the base, base, base model, the uh, the Kia Nero HEV, which is hybrid electric vehicle S, which is 44,380 before on-road costs. So you're looking at the best part of 50 grand on the road by the time you've paid all your state taxes and charges and things like that. Now, the electric one is about 20 grand more expensive again and is playing in Tesla Model 3 slash Model Y kind of territory. So a bit of a hard sell for Kia on that front, especially when you consider the EV6 is such a radical departure. But at the hybrid end, yeah, it's going up against things like a top of the tree CHR hybrid. But at 44,380, you're also looking at sort of mid-range to low-range Toyota RAV4 hybrid money, Mm. which is a bigger vehicle uh, with more runs on the board. I guess the only saving grace for Kia is there ain't no stock of RAV4. So even if you want one, you probably can't get one, but certainly not particularly cheap. Um, are they uh, affected by supply restraints as well within the Nero? Yeah, Kia is caught up in a pretty bad way with supply shortages across most of its cars. The two Korean brands, and, and Crawford knows this better than most, having recently done a trip with Hyundai, but the Korean brands are forecasting that supply is going to get back underway relatively shortly in terms of the semiconductor constraints, but there's no doubt that any, any low-emission vehicle in general, Australia struggles to get supply because we don't have binding um, CO2 reduction policies in place. So for that price point, Mike, I mean, the Korean brands have been known to to include a lot of features as as standard, but would you say that the base Nero hybrid represents good value for money? Um, Not particularly, no. I I don't think it came overwhelmingly packed with features to justify that price point. Um, By no means is it badly equipped. You still get a decent touchscreen, but it is only an 8-inch system that relies on phone mirroring, so it doesn't have proprietary nav. It's not that big 10.25-inch digital cluster with a 12-inch center screen that you get in the more upmarket model and that you also get in things like the Kia Sportage. It's got halogen headlights, oh. 
with LED daytime what? running lights, which seems incongruous. It's got an actual key that you need to put in the ignition barrel and turn. Um, so it's got a urethane steering wheel rather than a leather steering wheel. So it is missing some some features that I would have thought you would expect to get in a $50,000 high-tech electrified vehicle. Um, so no, it's not offering a hell of a lot and they have had to strip out a lot of things. If you were to step up into the next uh, grade, the GT line, which uh, let me just remind myself of the price of the GT line is going to cost you an extra $6,000, so about fifty-five drive away. That's adding a lot more nice luxury features, bigger alloy wheels, keyless start and entry, bigger screen, et cetera, et cetera, but you are paying a fair premium for that. So, no, on, on first impression, I actually don't think it's sensational value for money. And in terms of size, so we're talking about it being priced right up against a RAV4, mm-hmm. which is, you know, traditionally regarded, you know, it's a mid-sized SUV. This is considered a small SUV. Is there a massive difference in interior space, including boot space, compared to a RAV4? Well, I was deeply impressed with the back seat space, actually. So it's 4.4 metres long, which is not huge. It's a little bigger than a Seltos, but we're not we're not talking some 4.7 metre long Mitsubishi Outlander or 4.6 metre long Toyota RAV4 competitor here. But I'm 194 centimetres, so, you know, 6'4 or so on the old money, so a little taller than average and I, and I had no issues in the back seat behind my driving position I had tons of toe room really good headroom really good leg room um, shoulder space I was actually quite surprised by how practical the back seats were that's one area where this car does very well and then you get to the boot and, and Croft was asking about the boot space before so 425 litres um, 475 for the EV which comes down to the spare wheel I presume because the hybrid yeah. does have a space saver spare so yeah. 425 litres is sort of between your typical small hatchback and your typical mid-sized SUV. So a decent mm. boot, but it's not some massive, capacious, you know, Honda HRV style load lugger, or at least previous gen Honda HRV load lugger. <laughs> not so much. Freaking no, no longer use yeah. that as the benchmark. But yeah, yeah, in terms of in terms of its footprint, it's actually a pretty small car. Hmm. So how does the hybrid drive, Moko? Yeah, so look, Kia's made leaps and bounds with his hybrid tech lately. It's a 1.6-litre petrol engine with an electric motor, drives the front wheels. System uh, output is 104 kilowatts and 265 newton metres. Um, for the most part, it's actually really good. Uh, there are a couple of occasions where the dual-clutch gearbox felt a little bit jerky. There was a little bit of hesitation from that petrol engine, which wasn't always as refined as I would have liked to it be. But, but more often than not, it got off the line really smoothly using electrification, as these hybrids are very good at. Um, but also taps into the battery power quite regularly at speed. So unlike most hybrids, it actually has a tachometer. So you can really closely monitor whether the engine's doing anything or whether it's been shut off to allow the battery to actually drive the car. Um, I drove up a hill into my multi-story car park this morning at 20 k's an hour, up about a 20-degree hill, and it pulled up all the way fully electric, which lots of hybrids won't. Uh, I've done about 400 k's, and I've averaged 4.6 litres every 100, which is very, very fuel-efficient. It's not far off the claim and is pretty much what I would expect a Corolla hybrid to do. So it's very, very efficient in that sense. Um, Just under 10 seconds, zero to 100. So it's no speed demon, but you're going to keep up with traffic just fine. But it's more the fact that it's very good at regularly tapping into electric drive. Like you can drive, you know, from from the boom gate to my car spot is a five, 600 meter drive. And I do the whole thing in electric, just crawling along at 20, 25 in silence. So they, they are getting a lot better now at being electric more often. 
often rather than, you know, being petrol 99.9% of the times like older versions of the hybrids were. Um, there's still a little bit of refinement that could be done just to smooth out the handover between the two drive systems, but overall very efficient, respectably punchy, won't blow your socks off, but like a Corolla hybrid, quite punchy at low speeds because it leans on that electrification quite a bit. How many are they intending to sell? Yeah, look, I think clearly this is a vehicle that doesn't have a lot of brand equity in the market. Kia Nero, it's not as well known as Kia Seltos or Kia Sportage or a lot of its other SUV vehicles. So it's probably not going to be doing the multi-thousand units a month that those cars do. Um, Hybrid will be the majority of sales because... By the time you're spending 65, 70 grand on the electric one, well, you may as well get an EV6, right? Like it's the same brand and a clearly better car. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if it managed to do a few hundred a month. I think um, if, if, you know, positioning positioning is probably a little high, but at the moment people really want hybrid tech and everything is so supply constrained, I imagine they'll sell every single one they can get their hands on, at least for the foreseeable future. Like most cars, I suspect it will be mostly supply uh, related rather than demand related, but um, I don't think Kia is expecting this to be a top seller anytime soon. I like the design. Yeah, it's funky, isn't it? Um, yeah. it, looks, it looks quite cool. I really like Kia's new iconography, its new badging. Mine didn't have that weird first-gen Audi R8 style clip on the sail plane thing, whatever the hell that's trying to be. Um, but I quite like the nose of it. I've actually caught a few people checking me out in it and I don't think it's because I'm in it. I think it's because of the car. Um, but it, it actually looks um, it actually looks pretty sharp in person, really nice light Ooh. signatures, which is why the halogen, yellow halogen lights are such a shame because you've got such great LED DRL yeah. light signatures. At the rear, it's quite edgy and sporty. It's it, 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 Even though it's a little crossover SUV, it has a much more hatch-like sort of stance about it. Um, So, yeah, in terms of design, on the inside as well, uh, I think the design inside is fantastic. I mean, some of the plastics used to feel pretty cheap, to be honest with you, and the fact you only get the small center screen is disappointing because there's a slab of black plastic around it. Um, But overall, like the digital instrument cluster, the the nice sort of screen, the really cool redesigned steering wheel, which is a very unique design, very Genesis in the way that the steering wheel looks, again, coated in crappy cheap plastic. Also, they've moved the stalk for indicators to the right-hand side, but they've kept the cruise control stalk on the left-hand side. So there's some weird ergonomic quirks I'm not used to. While I'm whinging, I also found the driver's seat utterly lacking thigh support. Like, it's almost completely flat. So if you do decide to take a corner with any sort of speed whatsoever, you will get thrown around the cabin. <laughs> so very wow. much designed as a city-focused car. But but again, just to sort of touch back on, the, the, the interior look... Not so much the feel, but the look and the tech, really, really sophisticated, really, really nice and high-end. And the active safety stuff too, it's got all of that you could imagine. So a big tick as far as that's concerned. The the only thing I'll say is uh, when the EV does land and if uh, people are looking at the GT line for 72 plus on roads, you've also got the Ionic 6 uh, dropping. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, probably around the same time, I might guess, and uh, that'll be from seventy to eighty. That's right. Um, like I, I don't think it will actually get to eighty. I think the top spec will be about seventy-eight. So you're talking about, uh, and if you talk about kit in that car, it's uh, when I look at this and I look at uh, an Ionic Six, I, I see a huge difference in the type of interior. 
cabin. Yeah, so in terms of in terms of what underpins it, the Nero is a generation behind. Now that's not a problem for an affordable everyday vehicle. And the mm. hybrid, even though it is a bit expensive, is still affordable for a lot of people, mid forties to 50 drive away. So you can kind of put up with it, I think, at that part of the market. But yeah, once you're talking over 70 grand, seriously, I just don't see the value play here whatsoever. Mm. Um, but keeping on the hybrid one, which is the one that's, that I've been spending all my time in, yeah, I don't think the value equation's quite there, but I don't think it's as egregiously bad as, as the EV situation is. Um, I think what's more interesting is the fact that we are starting to see at last some serious competition to Toyota in this space. Toyota has dominated hybrid for so long I think last year, from it was it was more than twenty percent of its volume was was hybrid last year. Um, it's massively supply constrained, which has driven prices through the roof for hybrid cars, which means that more Australians are unable to get lower emission vehicles, even if they wanted to, which is frankly outrageous. And so, more and more products coming into this market is not a bad thing. So the Nero's very existence is very very welcome. Mm. I agree. All right, keep your eye on the review at Car Expert very soon. Thank you, Mike Costello. Always a pleasure, guys. Now, if you're looking at cross-shopping a Jeep Grand Cherokee and a Nissan Patrol, you've come to the right podcast. Uh, to help make up your mind, Will, you've put these two back-to-back. Um, exactly which variants are they and how alike are they? Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of an interesting one that just kind of came together by chance for me. So I had the top-spec Patrol TIL and I had the top-spec Grand Cherokee L. Now, the Grand Cherokee L uh, top spec model is called the Summit Reserve. And it just, just for a little bit more context, Grand Cherokee L is a new, longer version of the WL series Grand Cherokee. Um, so it's uh, it's been stretched longer. It has a third row of seats, something the Grand Cherokee has never had before. And Jeep has actually launched it first before they introduced the, the, the shorter two-row Grand Cherokee. Now, if anybody uh, here was listening from, say, the US or Canada, they'd, they'd be thinking, why are you comparing a Grand Cherokee against a Patrol? But whereas in North America, they've got the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer, which are even larger SUVs that are related to the Ram 1500 underneath and go up against the likes of the Nissan Armada, which is what the Patrol is called there, as well as your Ford Expedition, Chevy Tahoe and Suburban, et cetera. We don't have that. So Grand Cherokee L is as big as it gets. Talking of things that we also don't have, we don't have a V8 option here. So a lot of people, uh, including Jeep fans, were up in arms that the diesel V6 disappeared globally from the new Grand Cherokee. Um, now, unfortunately, while the petrol V8 has survived, the classic 5.7 litre Hemi V8, it has not been made available here. So that means the only engine available right now in the Grand Cherokee L is a naturally aspirated 3.6 litre V6. So even though this is a considerably newer, fresher vehicle than the Nissan Patrol that's old as the hills, it's already kind of working off the back foot there because the Patrol has got a lovely naturally aspirated 5.6 litre V8 engine that just puts this Grand Cherokee L's Pentastar V6 in the shade. Another thing that is immediately working against the newer fresh Grand Cherokee L is the fact that in Summit Reserve, guys, it is priced at 115450 before on-road costs, which is a cool 20 grand more than wow. the top spec patrol. So, Will, um, what interior uh, did you like the most? 
So I will say overall, the Jeep, which is perhaps not surprising because it's the newer interior, but there are some very big caveats attached to that. So in terms of material quality, the Nissan is actually better. You've got lovely soft touch kind of stitched trim running down the sides of the center stack. You've got gathered leather trim in the doors, which is a bit 90s, but it all feels really <laughs> nice and, and premium to the touch. Whereas the Grand Cherokee L, um, the Summit Reserve adds some stitching details on the dash, which you won't find in the lower spec limited and night eagle, but it's not really very soft to the touch. It kind of just looks like stitched plastic. Now the overall interior design is gorgeous. It is a fantastic looking interior, but when you poke a little bit closer, the material quality just isn't up to the same level as the Patrol, which feels considerably more plush inside. Now, if we're talking technology, the Patrol is absolutely left in the shade. Um, it doesn't have any kind of smartphone mirroring, so no Apple CarPlay, no Android Auto. It has got a navigation system that is just woefully out of date. It still gives you directions to your nearest Infinity dealership. <laughs> no, I need to upload that. Um, now, it also doesn't have a digital speedometer. It has got this tiny little dot matrix screen in the instrument cluster and the little the little view of the car. I mean, it looks like a Tamagotchi screen. So they, they haven't updated. And what's frustrating about that is left-hand drive versions of this vehicle have got a lovely new interior with a kind of tablet style infotainment screen and a totally redesigned center stack. And Why do we miss all this? Well, because we're basically, what, one of maybe two right-hand drive markets for this vehicle, um, two or three. Uh, and this, the Nissan clearly just hasn't, you know, seen the merit in investing in, in a right-hand drive version of the new interior. So that's really disappointing. Um, but the Jeep runs uh, a, a new infotainment system. It's got wireless smartphone mirroring. Everything looks slick, but it's not without its faults. So it... Um, the menu system is just maybe a little bit cluttered. There's a bit too much going on. It's perhaps not the simplest interface. And we did experience a, a couple of issues with the car. So at one point I was driving and the there's, there's like a full map display mode that you can view in the instrument cluster. And it just kind of froze my location and for the rest of the day it thought that I was still in the exact same spot that I was so it thought I was like basically 50 kilometers north of, of my actual house oh. and I tried you know turning the car off and restarting it um, and that didn't fix it but the next day it just kind of fixed itself so maybe a few teething issues there for the new in-car tech there um, but everything just looks looks fantastic in the interior and the technology is great so when you step up to the summit reserve you get just a bunch of equipment and some of the highlights and i know i've, I've spoken on the podcast about this before but some of the hot, uh, highlights include massaging front seats a night vision mode for the uh, for the instrument cluster a macintosh 19 speaker sound system um there's a, there's a lot there to justify the extra 20 grand. You just have to ignore the fact that you're kind of taking a step back in performance, if not fuel economy, because it was noticeably more efficient. Um, well, that was actually going to be my next question, Will. Okay. Every time I see a patrol on the road, I cringe at how much that thing must be costing that person to run in petrol. Um, how did you find the fuel economy on both of them? 
Uh, the patrol's fuel economy was about what you would expect. Um, <laughs> so, you know, take that as you will. Um, so, looking here, so across the same loop which is a, uh, that I use, which is a mix of, of inner city, suburban, and highway driving, I averaged 12 litres per 100 kilometres in the Jeep. Um, over the course of my time with it, that went up to 14 litres. So, not exactly fuel efficient, but, you know, not horrible. I mean, I, I get similar fuel economy in my in my genesis which is literally <laughs> less practical but i perhaps drive that a little bit more aggressively now the patrol just uh over the same loop i was averaging 14.2 liters per 100 kilometers um over the course of my time with it it was a lot of city driving granted but it was averaging around 16 so it uh it certainly drinks fuel as, as much as you would expect from from a big v8 mm. Mm. Um, so I suppose we should ask you, how did they compare in driving? Mm. Well, huge, huge difference in, in the way they drive. I actually took both off-road as well. Um, so we had a little bit of an off-road day up in the Glasshouse Mountains, which was nice. Um, when you step up to the Grand Cherokee L, uh, you get a different four-wheel drive system from other Grand Cherokee models. Um, you also get air suspension. So you can raise the car by, from memory, up to 60 mils higher than usual. Um, so that kind of, uh, obviously the patrols are very purpose built for wheel drive. You know, it's, it's a body on frame vehicle, whereas the Grand Cherokee is unibody. Um, but once you step up to summit reserve levels, um, uh, you get a little bit more hardware that helps make it a little bit better off road. And to be fair, the Grand Cherokee L never got stuck. The patrol is probably the one though, that I would be more comfortable taking uh, off the beaten track. You've got like a rear diff lock with the patrol which you don't have with the grand cherokee um so on road it's a different story so the patrol has got very very light steering it's very loosey-goosey for lack of a better word um it's comfortable um it generally seems to float over your typical bumps and ruts in the road but sometimes it can be a little bit fidgety when when the when roads get really poorly surfaced um it's got lane keep assist, but it's brake based. So it's, it's more, a Hey, I'm already crossing over into the lane, fix it. Not a, not a kind of proactive system. Um, it, it, it's refined. It is extremely quiet, um, except for when you're really belting it. Um, and then you hear that lovely engine note. It's a great sounding engine, which is bad because then you just want to floor it a little bit more. And <laughs> then you're averaging, you know, very high uh, double digits for fuel economy. Um, now, the Grand Cherokee L has a very different feel. It feels a little bit more car-like. It does feel like they've, they've engineered a little bit a float into it. I don't know if it's necessarily the air suspension or something, but it doesn't feel quite as car-like as say a CX-9, but it also doesn't feel as, as rugged and, and, um, um, four-wheel drivey <laughs> this is it's the end of the day, Mandy, my, my vocabulary is going out the window. Well, um, it's, um, but it's got a, it's got steering that feels a little bit more confidence inspiring. You don't feel like you have to slow down massively for corners like you do with the patrol. Um, it's, it's a very comfortable car to drive. Now the downside is the engine. It's, it's not bad. It's, you see, you never know. It's not bad. The sentence is never going to end well when it starts with, it's not bad. He's a nice guy, but, uh, but um, it's, it's adequate. 
let's just say that it, it's adequate. Um, it's got a bit of an, an exaggerated engine note to, to it. I don't know if, oh. if Jeep intentionally did that to make it sound more sporty or more powerful. It kind of does the opposite. It just makes it sound like it's just noisy. Um, but I, I, I genuinely, I, I had it for, you know, my time for, for a week or so, and I was really enjoying driving it around town. It doesn't feel quite as unwieldy as a patrol. Um, and having that air suspension is nice if you just want to, say, lower it because you're going into a tight parking lot because uh, there were certainly some parking lots with a patrol where I'm like, oh, oh <laughs> not sure that's going to happen. I just can't believe they're still using that Pentastar engine like, it's, I mean, it's been around for a decade. Yeah, look, it has. And, and what's frustrating is, is we know that Jeep has a new slicker uh, six-cylinder engine uh, available. So they just revealed this year um, an inline-six turbocharged engine that they've put into the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer um, called the Hurricane. Uh, the outputs look good. Um, there's a plug-in hybrid version coming. So it all looks really promising. Um, just kind of waiting to see if that makes its way into the Grand Cherokee. It seems like yeah. that would be a very logical fit for it if yeah. that engine were to be added to it and the Pentastar banished. Again, I'm not saying I hate the Pentastar V6. It's a it's a it's a serviceable engine, um, but you've got to work it hard, Will. Yeah, you've got to work it hard. You do, and and the thing is as well. One thing we haven't touched on yet is the difference in towing capacity. So the Jeep Grand Cherokee L is rated to tow. 2,268 kilograms. That's its brake towing capacity. So that's less than um, other Grand Cherokee Ls, which are 2,813. And it's considerably less than the Patrol, which is rated to tow, you know, three and a half ton. Mm. So mm-hmm. when when I asked um, Jeep Australia's MD about this um, at the Grand Cherokee L launch that I went to, he said, well, look, some people have got to reevaluate their needs. Um, some people, perhaps some people don't actually need that capacity. Um, I, I, I totally understand it, that some buyers are like, well, I've got to have this. I've got to have a car that has this much towing capacity and they don't necessarily need it. But it's it's also disappointing that Jeep no longer offers another option there to those buyers that actually genuinely do need that um, because that diesel V6 really did just hit, hit the sweet sweet spot for a lot of buyers. Mm. And now a lot of those, those buyers don't really have anything in the Grand Cherokee family to choose from. There's a more efficient engine coming um, in the shape of the plug-in hybrid, which will be available in the two-row WL Grand Cherokee. Um, but diesels are basically dead for Jeep globally. They're moving away from them rapidly. They're about to, you know, they're planning to roll out electric vehicles this this decade. They're rolling out more and more plug-in hybrids. So, yes, it, it is unfortunate that not only is there no diesel option, but we also don't get the petrol V8 because there would still be buyers that would, I mean, you look at patrol sales, they're pretty good. Um, so being, being able to still offer a V8 here would have been great for Jeep. They've had yeah. some great engines in the past. They've had the four uh, four cylinder turbo, um, a forty eight valve mild hybrid. We never got that. We never saw that. It was in the Wrangler Unlimited, which made it incredibly efficient, incredibly fast, incredibly good, uh, and yet we never saw it. Um, they're kind of lacking, uh, well, at least in this country, that sort of eco boost uh, engines that Ford do, which have a lot of power and uh, more than capable of hustling along a vehicle of this size and weight, you know. 
One other thing I will say about the two models as well. So even though I mentioned that this the Patrol isn't the Grand Cherokee's direct rival in its home country, the Grand Cherokee L is a pretty bloody big beast. Um, so it is longer than a patrol from memory and roughly as wide. Um, and in terms of third row room, um, you'd expect the patrol to be pretty comfortable back there. It's all right. The Grand Cherokee L, though, I would say has the edge in terms of third row comfort and amenities. And they Jeep struck a pretty decent balance between offering a good amount of boot space with all three rows up, something a lot of SUVs, it's just like... You know, yeah, you'd be lucky to get an overnight bag in there. Um, and offering that balance between boot space and third row comfort. Now, uh, Al Wars also had some time with the Grand Cherokee L up in Brisbane. He commented that second row, row legroom wasn't great. So, evidently, you've got to make compromises there when you're trying to fit as much as possible into a vehicle. But it's certainly a big vehicle. It's longer than a patrol. It's longer than a Land Cruiser. Perhaps 400, like- 487 litres of boot space behind the third row. Mm. Like the third row. Yeah. That's huge. It's good. Yeah, and, it's good. <laughs> and I see it folds dead flat, the whole three rows. Like it's uh, – well, the whole two rows anyway. The and it's, row. a, it's a very boxy body as well. So it's, mm. it's, mm. it's not a slave to style. That said, it is actually a pretty good-looking car. I actually really like the way the Grand Cherokee L looks. And we got them. I'll, maybe I'll have to put photos up on my Instagram eventually. But um, man, we got them absolutely filthy driving through yeah. mud. It's something wow. very. And I said this in my Grand Cherokee L launch review. There's something very satisfying about, pl- you know, plugging through big puddles of mud and dirt yeah. and climbing over rocks while you've got ventilated massaging seats <laughs> doing their work. But they were both very dirty at the end. I hope I none I- of that mud made its way into the open poor wood. Well, I can't wait to see those photos, Will, and uh, those that comparison will be going live soon. Now, Will, while we're in, in between recording segments uh, for the podcast, I realised you went to a car show on the weekend that I was going to go to, but I wimped out because it was super windy because Melbourne. Um, what? I, I know, I know, but in a convertible, it's just not nice. You can buffet it around and all that sort of stuff. But I was so disappointed to find out that you actually went and I could have caught up with you. Girl, um, you missed out because it was amazing. So I, there's, so up in Brisbane, we've got a cars and coffee that's on the south side and it's basically this one whole street of an industrial estate like it's like two blocks long cars parked in every single parking lot and it's amazing there's all these people and everything and it's 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 the best cars and coffee in brisbane right um in cooperu i think the suburb is now i went to this one highball cars and coffee because i've been down here in melbourne for the past month and i saw a parking lot and i'm like oh and then there's another parking lot okay that's pretty big pretty big and then I walk through some little arcade thing and then there's another parking lot full of cars and then another one and then another one. Like, I don't know, Mandy, have you ever been to Highball Cars and Coffee? At no. Mall? You need to go to it. Everybody who's listening who lives in or around Melbourne needs to go to this Cars and Coffee because it was insane how big this uh, this this wow. this Cars and Coffee event was. Just to give you an idea of some of the highlights, Um Paul was there uh, in his Humvee, uh, which we've all heard so much about. <laughs> it was parked right near Lamborghini's first SUV, um, which was cool. really cool, um, in just absolutely stunning condition. So, obviously, not an Urus. I'm talking about, of course, the OG Lamborghini SUV. Um, and what else was there? Uh, right nearby, there was a Jeep Grand Wagoneer um, in perfect condition oh, with, like, 
mint condition Dinoc trim down the sides, like like you've seen in every single 80s movie ever. Um, Just the variety, because I I don't go to cars and coffee to see supercars. I don't go there to see modified stuff. Now, there was a little bit of both there, so that's cool. Um, And, of course, you know, there's, there's a lot of appeal to people from all ages. I dragged, you know, three people who aren't necessarily into cars and they had an absolute, you know, well, at least two of them had a great time. Um, (laughs) There was a DeLorean that was signed by not Elizabeth Shue, uh, Claudia Wells, um, who played Marty McFly's girlfriend in Back to the Future. Um, There was a Subaru Vortex there, Um, a 1975 to 78 Cadillac Eldorado Biarritz. Just just the variety of, I'm talking European, Japanese. There was a Ford Laser Lynx there. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. The highlight. And so Mike was there at some point. I just missed him. I ran into Paul and Jack was there. You weren't there, Mandy, because it was cold. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Was it rainy? No, it no, wasn't. No, it was super, super windy. Yeah, no. it, it, it was, and yeah. I, I, I totally I totally get that if you have a convertible. Um, but perhaps the, the greatest highlight um, and something that I think we all commented on after we had, uh, had been to the show, two mint-condition 1980s Mitsubishi Magna wagons. One was a base GLX, one was an Elite. They what? were just parked pride of place near an Alfa Romeo SZ and um, near that Lamborghini and, and a couple of other, like, you know, very exclusive high-value cars. But they were just parked there, and I'll tell you what, everyone was just blown over to see them because they were you – know, this is – and I, I, I'm in danger of repeating myself here, um, but – this is why I go to these car shows. I go there to see stuff that perhaps you don't just don't see anymore. Maybe it was common once and it's rare now. Maybe it was never common. But I'm there for the kind of the mundane stuff. And what I really want to see, and I'm calling out to anybody in Australia listening um, to, to make this happen, um, but I know in the UK um, they have a show called The Festival of the Unexceptional. In the US they have something called Concours de Lemons, like as in lemons. <laughs> Uh, yes. Um, and these shows celebrate not, you know, oh, this is this is the most exclusive Ferrari, only five were ever made. Like, I could not care less, to be honest. I am there for some mint condition Chimera that's still got an original copy of Melways on the driver's seat. Yes. Like, this is the stuff yeah. I go to car shows I for. I totally so agree. You need yeah. to go to Highball Cars and Coffee next time it's on. I, I, carry an umbrella. I don't know. You've got to figure <laughs> out a way, Mandy. Um, but you have to go to it. Hey, yeah. Will, was there a Zagato Alfa Romeo there? Uh, there was the SZ. That was yeah. Zagato, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's one of my favorite cars, by the way. Oh. Um, such yeah. a bizarre-looking design. Oh, I think it's so ugly. But it was really? so awesome to see it. It was yeah, so cool. insanely yeah. expensive back then. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I love it. The DeLorean, I didn't realize how many DeLoreans. There's so many in Australia. I've There's seen at least hundreds. two in Brisbane, so... <laughs> There's so many. Um, What about that Rothmans Porsche that I'm looking at? Was that there, the, like, raised rally Porsche? I have to be honest, Croft, when I had that much ground to cover, I just kind of walked past the Porsches. I stopped and looked at a couple of 928s. There was a 968 there, which I can't remember the last time I've seen one of those. But, I mean, Porsches are not what I gravitate to at these car shows. You know what a 968 is, Mandy? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course Mandy knows. She knows better (laughs) than I would. I thought she looked... Perturbed, and I, I thought, oh no, she must. No, no, no. I'm like, nice. I'd never seen one. I no, know. I've, I've never seen them. So yeah. expensive. 
when they yeah. came out, like 90 grand. So a huge wow. money in the wow. mid-80s, I think, mid to late 80s. Yeah. All anyway. right, we better wrap this up. Have you've, Those photos are on social, yeah, Will? Uh, have- look, I will be drip-feeding them on my car Instagram account. Um, right. So uh, williamstopford.cars. Oh, look, I can plug my Instagram too, Tony. <laughs> do, I, do I follow you? I must follow William. you then. I need to see you these You should photos. follow me. You should I follow should. me. Of course I should. <laughs> I'm sure you are, actually. Um, Now, talking of events, we have got a few in the calendar this week. Uh, So I know that Paul is currently at a launch event for the new Mitsubishi Outlander FEV or plug-in hybrid EV as as Mitsubishi loves to call them now. And Scott will be heading up to Sydney uh, to test drive the Cooper range. But Tony, you've got an event to go to this week as well, don't you? I have, guys. Um, I'm uh, going to the updated Hyundai Palisade, which has a uh, all-new front end, new interior, new kit, lots of new safety. Uh, so I'm actually looking forward to that. I have not spent much time in a Palisade. And what cars have we got coming up in the garage? Oh, well, I, I was supposed to be getting into a car up in Brisbane, but that has been temporarily delayed. So let's talk about what we have in Melbourne. So uh, I said before that we're going through the Ranger lineup. So we'll have a Sport V6 uh, through our garage down here this week, uh, a Kia Nero EV GT line. So going from a hybrid S to an EV GT line, bit of a bit of a change there. We've got a Renault Arcana RS line, uh, Mitsubishi Triton GSR, and we will also have the Havel H6 GT. So that's that new coupe SUV style Havel SUV. Uh, I already I've saw one on the roads just the other day, so uh, it was a bit too far away for me to get a good look at it, but it'll be interesting to see it when it's here. Yeah, a big mix indeed. All right, that's a wrap, Tony Crawford and William Stopford. Thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Will. <laughs> Thanks, Mandy.